Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So this morning, uh, I'll start us off with a question someone asked me recently. Um, this uh, someone, it was a simple question. How do I teach others better? Uh, and it was really in the context of this individual is very talented. Uh, he's, he's very good at his job, but um, he was expressing that during college and just continuing after he would very explicitly when asked for help would, would give people like step-by-step instructions and they never seemed to grasp they could do those, but then they could just never go out and, and really take from what they learned. And that reminded me of a conversation I had with a former coworker who really had kind of given up on being able to teach others certain things. There were certain traits in other coworkers that he felt were just, uh, they either had it or they didn't. Uh, one of those in particular was the ability to sort of intuit kind of what was next or, or what needed to get done. And so this, uh, he struggled with, with other of his peers where they they just had an over-reliance upon him and, and he couldn't really teach them to get off of that. So it's, it's an interesting question for me because I, I care deeply about that ability and training others, but I also think I've noticed in my life growth in that area and I can look back even to when I was a kid and how I started to develop some of those abilities uh, based on circumstances not necessarily like I just always had a knack for it so I'm curious in my response to this person you know what's your advice and and how to teach others more effectively and how to how to mentor others more effectively in some of these areas that are are hard to lay step-by-step instructions out Mm mm-hmm yeah, that's uh, well, that's kind of a difficult question. I, <laughs> I think uh, I don't. Well, first of all, let's unpack. I think there's a difference between mentoring and teaching. Interesting. What would that difference be? Well, what do you think? What do you intuit? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm thinking of mentoring. Um, being a little bit more, a little bit more vague, a little bit more abstract, uh, almost helping refine the edges of an individual, um, give them some broad strokes, etc. Whereas teaching is a little bit more direct and focused on a specific area. That's what I would guess. Okay, that's helpful. I would have never, I didn't guess that's what you would answer. So uh, huh. that's. Uh... I think that's pretty far off from the distinction. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Go and I think it. that, uh, I think it, uh, you have to I, teach me how to think about that differently. No, I think you're a great <laughs> example of, uh, again, for listeners, there are uh, a couple of more accessible, um, uh, videos on YouTube you can watch regarding Ian McGilchrist, but I think he, uh, some of these, he will tease out this difference. And here would be the difference. First of all, where does the word mentor come from? 
I don't know. Oh, sure you do. It's a, it's a Greek fable. Uh, story of a man who is going away <clears throat> and he wants his son to go on a certain journey. And uh, he enlists mentor who has walked this path that uh, he wants, the father wants the son to go on. So a mentor is someone who's very familiar with the path that the uh, young man wants to go on. The mentor uh-huh. has walked it. And I think our last podcast, we probably talked about paths, if I remember yep. correctly. And so uh, a mentor is someone who just simply knows, oh, I, I know how to get there. I know how to get there. I could do it with my eyes closed. Huh. Uh, because of that, bec- uh, a mentor has uh, dirt under their fingernails. They uh, understand the uh, complex the complexities and what have you. So the point is, it's not on the edges, rounding off edges and more vague and abstract. Uh, it's actually the heart of what used to be considered knowledge because mentoring requires that the mentor embodies whatever is trying to be passed on. And there's your key word embodies hmm. let me and, give you a, go ahead i was just gonna say and and would you how would you explain teach teaching or a teacher well teaching especially in the western world you don't have to embody it at all hmm. so that's the reason i'm thinking of uh, mcgilchrist is a, a recent interview i don't know where it was um but he talks about uh teaching today is saying oh let me teach you about Jane Austen. Here's six points I'm going to make on Jane Austen, which he points out just guts Jane Austen, takes mm-hmm. the life right out of it. No wonder. I, I was a history major undergrad uh, in college, and most people would roll their eyes. It's a dying major because the way it's taught. And the best, uh, one of the best mentors for me in this was uh, I didn't study under him, but Alan Gelzo, who is now at Gettysburg College. And uh, we used to run a retreat, uh, actually a leadership center with a faith-based organization. It's out of the Eastern Shore of Maryland. And uh, Gelzo came in and we would have these uh, weekends and Friday night there would be a speaker. And it was all one of these things you would stay for the weekend and but here's how he teed it up. He walked around. There was four, five of us in a group, probably about five groups. And he gave us a situation that Abraham Lincoln faced. And he said, how would you solve it? And we worked it out over dinner. And then after dinner, he came back and he walked us through how Lincoln made his decision at each one of the five. And by the way, in each one of the fives, uh, five situations, we completely missed how Lincoln would have done it and laughed but you were sitting inside this, uh, the life of Lincoln yeah. that Gelzo had walked and walked and walked. And so he taught without teaching. Teaching that's, that's in the didactic simple. sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Didactic means instruction. And, uh, but the, the, the problem with most, most teaching today is it's, it's offered from people who don't embody it. Mm. 
So that's good. That's helpful. Yeah. So, you know, for a quick example is, uh, so I was a, uh, pastor for eight years, probably still am in a lot of senses, but I was a pastor in a church we planted and, you know, I got rave reviews on a uh, series I taught one year on serving servanthood. And, you know, I thought I really hit the ball out of the park here. And then, uh, years later, I'm at this, uh, leadership center and I'm, I'm, I'm the director of it. I run the thing. But staffing was a challenge, and especially there was a, an event we had, which was really overbooked. We didn't have enough people for the dining. And it was pretty, it was pretty high dining. And I remember, uh, so I just jumped in and was serving wine. And uh, so here I am uh, this, at this table, this young kid who's going to an Ivy League school. He's raising his hands and says, hey, you, some more wine. Finally, you know, I wanted to say, you damn such and such a kid. I got a doctorate. What the hell with you? And I'm thinking, my, my, you really do embody servanthood. <laughs> so I never mentored anyone to be a servant. Hmm. But I didn't know it because I was measured by, I really like the way you preach. So mentoring is, first of all, is someone who has walked the path. Now, good teaching ought to be, ought to include that. But um, they say another difference is mentoring is highly effective, but mostly inefficient. What does that mean? Effectiveness being it makes a difference, but efficient being um, it's not the straight line between point A and B. It could take could take longer. Yeah. So mentoring. Um, so I have a Zoom later on this morning with someone who wants to be mentored over the next several years. And I often use the picture uh, stolen from mostly from C.S. Lewis, that uh, our lives are meadows. And we've talked about that in this podcast. And so here's someone who feels they're late in the game at ascending to their next meadow. And when this uh, individual talks about where they are and where they want to be, I immediately can just, I can imagine probably the best path. Now in a, in the Western didactic enlightenment approach, we would lay out three points. And if you went to the seminary I went to, they would all be alliterated. Listeners, that means they all start with the same letter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> might even wow people with, uh, wow, that's incredible alliteration. But what you end up with is someone goes, oh, I can't do what they do. I can't speak like that. And uh, it would, you completely miss the point of mentoring. And so uh, with this person uh, that later this morning, we are beginning the ascent. And I find the ascent to the next meadow, which is generally, I, I tell them, is about 10 feet higher, so you can't see it. Uh, I would say... 
I don't know, but two thirds or more of the men that I have worked with over the years who want to make this ascent, be it either from the meadow of their 20s to the 30s or from the 30s to their 40s or 40s to the 50s or 50 to the 60s, uh, the majority drop out. Hmm. You know why they drop out? Uh, I would guess they, they get tired. They yeah, why do they get tired? Well, the, the climb, the ascent is, is definitely not, not an easy one often. They and it's not a straight line. To, uh, yeah. And it's, it's not it's, efficient. It's not efficient, right. And certainly as a book, I can just read and figure out how to do it. Yeah. And again, figure out is a phrase straight out of the Enlightenment. It, it's, it denotes, because it's a mathematical term, it denotes that the Western world is caught up in what's called mathematization. Whew. There's a long That's word. A big one, Mike. It's early for that. Yeah, it's a big one. It is, and uh, but it basically means uh, without without knowing it. I mean, this is just the background wallpaper. Is that uh, okay? Uh, Jesus, fully God, fully man. We got to figure that out. Uh, um, God. We got to figure that out. I don't know. It's like water uh, can be frozen. Can be oh, okay. Good. We figured it out. <laughs> Now, I appreciate the stab, but so we just said, hey, uh, people who are interested in God, let's, we'll help you figure them out so that you'll come to them. So the finite mind just figured out the infinite, indescribable God. And we wonder why younger people are leaving the church. Hmm. This is the downside of how... Few people are mentored because it's not efficient. And, um, and mentoring is not a program in that regard. You can't sign up and say, I'm going to become a mentor because I, I know it sounds like chicken and the egg, which comes first. But if you've never been mentored, you probably will never be a mentor. And what makes you say that? Because you haven't experienced it. You haven't flushed it out yourself. Yes. And also because Jesus even himself said, no one's above the teacher. So there's nothing wrong with teaching per se. But it says uh, the pupil is not above the teacher until a certain season. And so it was three years into it, which is why I think the ascent generally is about three years. About three years into his time with his disciples, then he says, now I call you friends. And friends, friendship, as I understand it in scripture, involves in the very least reciprocity. Oh man, another big word. But I tell you, we were off to a slow start with big words today. <laughs> it means, in other words, you reciprocate. It, it means, for example, if your wife, Maddie, said, Do you know, you know, I am always telling you I love you, and you never tell me you love me, you don't reciprocate. And so uh, friends reciprocate. They bear one another's burdens. They, uh, they make a promise and keep it even to their own hurt. It says things like that. And so that comes, you can't mentor if you've never been mentored. You're, you'll turn it into a uh, something reduced 
and call it mentoring. Like uh, today for a lot of uh, what's called mentoring, unfortunately, <clears throat> is really group hug or uh, peers. So peers going together to, quote, uh, take the take the journey together. I love that language, by the way, uh, because most <laughs> this whole idea of of, of journey and uh, to travel. You know, there's a reason why when you read, for example, of Inklings, Owen Barfield, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, they didn't have any great desire to travel. Or talk about this as some sort of a journey. Now, if they wrote about it, they wrote about it that it was fraught with danger. Mm-hmm. And that's the old English word. Travel is travail, a journey fraught with danger. So the last thing you do is go off into the dark forest on your own to sort of figure out what's true, figure out the way, figure out what you believe, figure out who God is, figure out what the faith looks like. And then when you do it that way, you tend to turn it around and say, now today I'm going to teach you about servanthood. And um, it's today I'm going to give it to you in three points. Then next week could be the next three points. And you watch, in that approach, people pull out their phone, notebook, whatever, and start taking notes. And it's a dead giveaway. Hmm. Jesus never said to his disciples, uh, write this down. Here we go. Ready? This is important. I want you to write this down. He said, follow <laughs> me. Come and see. And he embodied the kingdom of the heavens. He embodied it and dwelt in the kingdom of the heavens and embodied the kingdom of the heavens. I like, I put it this way, that uh, one of the things that was most instructive when I first met uh, Dallas Willard was he talked about being a pastor for a couple of years, handful of years, and realized and he said, I really worked hard to try to see people come to faith and didn't really see much. And then he concluded one day, well, I must not look very much like Jesus. So he was found himself the next thing you knew. He was discovering these uh, ancient disciplines. Hold up, Pat. He began to discover these ancient spiritual bodily disciplines, silence, solitude, fasting, generosity, sacrifice, so on and so forth, and began to embody them. And if for anyone familiar with the spiritual disciplines, you know, you don't learn them in a book. You don't learn them from teaching the way teaching is done. You learn them primarily through mentors who embody it. Mm. That's tremendously helpful. Uh, Yeah, especially the differentiation. That's good. To circle back the, the idea of taking notes, um, what what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is 
if you are if you're truly mentoring, um, part of part of that is uh, sort of re readjusting the imagination of the individual as opposed to giving them clear set of instructions. It's almost like uh, um, I'm thinking the term is the social imaginary, but I don't know how relevant that would be to to listeners. But um, not very. Yeah. <laughs> Smith talks about that. <laughs> Charles Taylor talks about that. But the, the idea of in their head, what are they imagining as as uh, the, the path forward, et cetera? If, if they, someone takes out notes, that's great. I'm, I guess I'm just processing through. If I if I heard you say that, I'd be like, uh, but Mike, how are, how are you supposed to learn if you never take notes? Are you saying we shouldn't be taking notes ever? And and that's not what you're saying. But a, a no. really effective uh, teaching is going to uh, sort of reframe or, or recast this picture in your mind of of what the reality is. So Lincoln's a great example. Your imagination was blown in that experience as opposed to here are some notes on Lincoln's life. Like how you imagined Lincoln was a very different experience when you sat through and actually fleshed out how you would handle it in, in these five different scenarios and then reading about Lincoln. That that was a very right brain, creative, imaginative experience as opposed to here are some notes. And so if someone's deferring to notes, it's likely what you're teaching is is at the very least not going to blow their mind in terms of the imagination piece to it. Is that is that that's right. Okay. That's that's very good. And when we mention Lincoln, he felt he often rue the day. He would occasionally rue that he only had one year of formal schooling. I think he, in his saner moments, realized that's why he was so effective. Because because of that lack of formal schooling. He felt he had only mastered five books. Uh, they and I can't remember all of them, but I believe it was Aesop's Fables, Shakespeare, the Bible. So you see, mentor is someone who has mastered the way to go, has mastered it. So I, um, I'm trying to think of what I've ever mastered, um, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, but I, I, you know, for example, uh, I think I've uh, mastered how to uh, some aspects of landscaping, especially clearing out brush. Now you might sit there and say, so what? Well, then go back and read Genesis. He puts them in a garden and he tells them to cultivate it. So I think <laughs> I've got some. And so what can happen is um, you, know, you get in that setting, you can just picture like, well, we got to do this first and this and this. But because you've mastered it, you go also, this is about three years of work. This is the proverbial 800-pound gorilla. So here's bite one. The other, and you can teach in that regard, <clears throat> but you don't have, the, first of all, there's not a necessity to write as much, I guess I'd say, hmm. that. Because the writing often denotes as wallpaper in the background, you're probably going to forget this. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think it also, if, if you can capture it in writing quickly enough, 
it's likely not uh, complex enough. In other words, I've yeah. found working in the in the tech world, there are these written requirements for some projects or systems that I read, and I'm like, holy crap! You have to you have to write hundreds, if not thousands, of words to make sure that the specifications for the system is going to the mental model an engineer has is exactly the same as someone else. You have to use so many words to do that. <laughs> and what I've started to do is just drawing pictures. So even even small features or this and that when it comes to and I, I work more on the systems level of things, but drawing pictures in in a, a diagramming software to explain this is what we're doing. Does everyone have the same picture? When you think about this in your head, does it match this? And it's so much more effective in clarifying the small detailed pieces where you can actually zoom in and go, oh, I was thinking about that differently. Because you're not reading a thousand words and then translating that into a picture. You're looking at a picture and out of that come a thousand words. Much more effective. I get, uh, so listeners, I have chill bumps right now because uh, forget everything I've said today and just take that to the bank right there. The last, <laughs> the last 60 seconds. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, Pat. And uh, a picture's worth a thousand words. There you go. So, the those who there's a handful of preachers that I help either regularly or on occasion, and that's the point I make. Is that uh, now what I don't quite as much stress and probably ought to is uh, you have to embody whatever it is you're communicating. Once you embody it, so it comes out of your body. You picture it. And once you picture it, then you, you don't turn it into three points. So if you really embody Jane Austen novels, you don't turn around and say, six points I want to make here. Just in the same way, Kathy and I embody, embody our love for one another. But we don't sit down over lunch and go, uh, hey, babe, there's six points I want to talk about with our love. Mm. And I'd like you to write them down. <laughs> you know, it's funny to go on a little bit of a tangent, similar note, I'm thinking about effective books that I've enjoyed that, that have genuinely made a difference for me, uh, have not been the books of here are the 27 uh, practices of really important people. <laughs> you know that that type of thing, or or eight principles to live your life by. Because then you're thinking, okay. okay, well, I get the principle, and then you get into a situation. How do I apply the principle to the situation? Exactly. And and it's been far more effective books I've read. Like uh, Extreme Ownership is a great example, but uh, it's, a, it's a book written by two former Navy SEALs, and every chapter is here's a narrative, here's something we experienced, here's uh, the situation, and it's it's a uh, um, you know, personal history is basically what it is. And then they talk about, and here's looking back, here's what we did well in that. And then they, they, they form a principle or something out of that, but it's, it's rooted in story and narrative, which then when I think back on that book, I'm picturing those stories and then that's, Oh yeah. In this situation, they did this. And that's likely that relates to, to this thing I'm going through, et cetera, as opposed to here's the principle, let's move forward. That's more effective. 
That is exactly it, Pat. So because of that, you would have scribes and then in the uh, with the advent of the church where they're meticulous in recording these words of God. But the difference, remember, is that Paul would later write, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. Now what he meant by that was in a, in a sense, the moment the Ten Commandments were recorded by God's finger on stone, they began to die unless they were embodied via the Spirit through your body. Now, I know, let me, so let me tease that out a bit more. First of all, <laughs> according to Mel Brooks, there were 15, and then remember Moses trips and <laughs> drops one of the tablets. <laughs> God bless Mel Brooks. <laughs> <clears throat> but I know uh, I've helped companies, numerous companies, more than I can remember, come up with a, how they envision effectiveness, a tagline. I mean, it is, it is a, it's a whole, it's a whole, what we call it in our organization, ambidextrous strategic planning takes in both sides of the brain, but the right brain is more intuitive. Uh, and so the tagline is, uh, you know, some of them have proven, I think, pretty effective. They really capture, but they capture the picture that and becomes a shared picture. And so these exercises we go through, a lot of them are picture drawing and so on and so forth. And we tell them not to take notes because again, if you have this, uh, you have this fusion of body and spirit and mind and words, the words that are alive will, you will remember them. And hence we read the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It actually pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and can judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, which is often understood to be the conscience. And so in those times in my life when that has happened, I don't need to go back to a journal and say, you know, what, 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 what was happening there? It's vivid because mm -hmm. it's bodily. I say for the sample that uh, a good reason why people intuitively try to save themselves from marriage, and even though we know the failure rate is pretty darn high, it's also well known, you will never forget your first sexual experience. It's, it's so intensely bodily. Didn't break out into three points. And you'll never forget it. Hmm. Now, for us in this world, Pat, two, two things began to happen. Number one, and they're actually pretty much happen uh, simultaneously in history. You have the rise of the didactic enlightenment, particularly the didactic enlightenment, which reduces everything to uh, it, what's it, what's introduced is called the lecture. About fifteenth century, some of the first lithographs are funny as all get out. So it's the professor and students sleeping in their seats. 
Now, right there, they should that should have been a giveaway. This is not the most effective way to do it. And they're taking notes. Second, you have Gutenberg and the printing press. Now, again, nothing necessarily wrong with the printing press, except now instead of mastering a few and the art of listening to imaginative teachers who embody what they're teaching, you have left brain lectures, and even teachers, public schools, private, and even pastors, i.e. myself, teaching on abstract things, abstract because they don't really embody them. They haven't embodied them for more than a few days of pointing together a sermon. And requiring and really feeling good when people write down this stuff. Uh, I used to say when I was a pastor, so you really expect me to come up with 52 profound things every year that I embody. Mm -hmm. Listen, I'm lucky if I learn one thing in a year. So at least at my uh, young age, um, <laughs> I feel I really am drawn more to older traditions that it's a, it's a, it's a homily because the centerpiece of the service for at least 1500 years in almost every tradition was the centerpiece were the sacraments, the sacrament of Eucharist and having his body enter your body. And if you have that happen 10,000 times, you master from death comes life. Otherwise, it's a concept or a theory, but it's not experiential. And so because that's been sort of shunted off to the end of a service, more rapidly done, and not really believed to be the body and blood of Christ, the highlight really is the 25-minute sermon. So what will you get from that? A friend of mine, known him for over 30 years, tells a funny story about coming out of church one Sunday accidentally dropped his Bible. And he said, all these bulletins and notes came flying out all over the pavement. <laughs> yep. and it, was, it was a profound moment for him because he said, what are we doing? I don't remember any of this stuff. It's all, it was intense at the moment. And he, he too has been drawn back to ancient bodily spiritual disciplines and has he got under a mentor, and by the way, listeners, if you're interested, it's the it's the work of Ruth Haley Barton. You can just Google her and Transformation Center. But you also get in touch with, this is highly effective, but it's not highly efficient. It's not slam, bam, wham, you know, one day, thanks, Ruth, got it. Hmm. So it's, uh, you know, that triggers a couple of thoughts in my mind. One being as a mentor, there are, there are different guys I meet up with on a pretty regular basis. And it makes me think I, I should be pretty mindful of topics that come up and questions that come up and relating those to paths I've walked. And if I haven't walked them, then 
quite possibly I should not be giving advice on said subject. <laughs> and so that's, that's a, that's a good thought. It's a helpful thought. Um, often I, I think, well, yeah, let, let me help them figure this out. And I think that's a key indicator that I probably shouldn't be talking. <laughs> <laughs> but without the, a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> but the other, the other piece there, uh, I, I do want to come back to the, this original question that was, that was asked of me. And it's, it's a, a guy that, um, I am in a, in a mentor role with him at, uh, at the office. And so how I help him flush that out is interesting because I do think I've walked, I've walked the path of learning that ability. I, I think I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd say I'd walk the path of teaching or helping mentor someone through that. Um, so how, how could I best serve this person? I mean, I don't want to tell them, but yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Um, but my, my first guess would be maybe helping them uh, f- kind of f- process through in their own mind and reflect on how they have learned and pulling at those threads to, to discover that a little bit. Is that, is that a, a good path to walk down? Or oh, that's, there... that's a great, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, some ideas sprang to mind or actually some images. So here's, it goes back to your uh, question on intuition. So mm-hmm. here we go. First of all, one of the roles of life ought to be that you have a, uh, an informed intuitions. They become wise intuitions. My, here's what I mean by that. Listeners, again, we're, we've mentioned before uh, Matthew Crawford's book, Shop Class as Soulcraft, which I, I really do think is a helpful book. I laughed and laughed when he describes trying to snug a bolt on a Honda motorcycle engine and reading the manual and just the blue language that comes out of Crawford because he realizes this writer of this book doesn't know squadoosh about snug. <laughs> Snug is an intuition. Mm. It's not a figure out mechanical two and a half, 2.379845, rotations on this. It's an intu- it's intuitive. So here's what you get with mentors. They're suggestive far more than they are prescriptive. Mm. Now they are prescriptive. On occasion. And again, Charles Taylor does point out, by the way, you mentioned his book, A Secular Age, that one of the downfalls with this casting off of authority, especially of religious authority, is that the average pastor priest cannot be prescriptive today. That's That's invasive. So you can't say, thou shalt not. I'll give you a quick example. Um, I commend the priest in South Carolina who refused to give uh, Joe Biden when he was a candidate a communion because of Biden's stance on abortion. Hmm. I see a a whole, probably a whole lot of listeners, but a whole lot of people would go, uh, how judgmental can you be? Um, uh, How arrogant, how, no. No, but but we see we in the West don't really believe in this embodied 
an embodied Eucharist. We don't believe in um, what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church when he said, um, you have in your church, for example, a young man sleeping with his stepmother. Sleeping with her. And you don't do anything about it because you don't want to be judgmental. And you're taking each other to court and you're doing all these things. And that's why when you take communion, some of you, some of you in your church, some are dead. They've died. You can't be what scripture describes the church quite often as a whore, an adulteress, rather, and invite him into your body. They can kill you. And this priest is preserving the sanctity of the Eucharist. But, Pat, note that in that tradition, that priest was mentored for 10 years. Mentored. He couldn't become a priest till he was 30. So he couldn't handle the sacraments because he might not handle them properly. And how did he learn to handle them? He was mentored under older authority, older mentors who had walked this path, and he walked the path. I happen to know some of these young men, some in D.C. right now, and uh, they're remarkable, but they also have this very calm sense of, oh, heavens, no, uh, I won't be doing this and that until I'm a priest. And, and, and that's just not in Roman Catholicism, by the way. But you can't do that to you have been proven out that you understand what you intuitively know the feel of snug, for example, with a Honda engine. So I intuitively know the feel of a lot of things, but you learn those by practice. And um, so I am reminded, by the way, in discussing this is of uh, Madeline Lengel's poem, To a Long-Loved Love. And it's a poem that I give to our kids every year, along with a Christmas letter I write to them, because the poem talks about that they know every nook and cranny and curve of one another's bodies, now here in old age, as they lie together. And it still is fascinating. You don't learn that in a book. Hmm. So the intuition is intuition ink starts with a picture. And I think that why so many feel the failure of the institutional Christianity in the West is the average pastor, first the occupational ha hazard I felt that we all feel when you're a pastor <clears throat> is you got to come up with a sermon. It would have been far easier if we'd, we'd say, first of all, no, you just have to come up with a homily of what has happened in your body this week. I did on occasion as a pastor would stand when it came time for the sermon and said, I don't feel like God said anything to me this week, so we don't have a sermon. And that's a good way for some people to leave because they came for the sermon. <laughs> so it's like going to the mall and find out your store is closed. 
That's well, do that enough. I'm not coming wow. back. Wow. And uh, but that was my doing. That wasn't their problem. I, you know, I set up people to expect that. But um, you have now such a uh, explosion of books out there. Most of which, I mean, we've moved twice now in the last five, six years. And, you know, one move I thinned out books. In fact, I felt kind of sheepish because I would give them to people and they go, oh, thank you for this book. I wanted to say, I don't remember anything about it. And I'm not a generous person. There's a reason I'm giving it away. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and then we gave away, you know, a boatload more in moving to where we are now. You know what I was saying? I know I can picture exactly what part of that book page 300 right there hmm. that that was wisdom and i don't hardly even need the book to remember okay and i remember there and i remember that part there in willer's book okay that book right there okay that book right there what god hath wrought bing i remember that isaacson's hmm. biography of franklin i remember that part right there what a story you just remember them because you can see them. And so mentors are suggestive in this regard. <clears throat> and why I've, I've learned in mentoring to be suggestive is to, I'll say often, well, um, go watch this uh, RSA animate on Ian McGilchrist and come back and tell me what you think. Or, you know, for example, as a pastor, what I did, by the way, so if you're a pastor, here's a hint. People say, I really got to talk to you about X, Y, Z. I say, I'd be happy to. I'll tell you what, give me a call on Wednesday. Why did I do that? I don't know. 90% never called. Hmm. It's a spasmodic, you know, right spur of the moment. Got to talk to you. They, I know from walking the path with most of these people, they don't, that's not, the, that's not what they really need. And they're not going to follow through. Mm. Now, again, you might say, you are a crummy pastor. <laughs> Mike, and you're, not, you're might, not preaching sermons. You're not talking to people. <laughs> well, I'm preaching, you know, and I might very well have been a, a very poor pastor. Uh, but it might very well be that I'm not cut out for it. But in fact, I, do, I think I actually am. I have a pastoral heart that doesn't fit well in the pastoral, the way the occupation is set up today, hmm. that you slavishly respond to every single, of course, yeah, let's, let's do it. And I just learned, and, and no one felt hurt, but they would just, yeah, I, I'm really, I'm really taken with uh, John's writing in John six of uh, what Jesus does. He's got this big throng. He's got kind of like got the church of a thousand that I was shooting for. And what he does, what does he do? He thins out the herd. Mm -hmm. You know, we would be like, let's get together with as many people as we can and get them connected. So that they, why do you want to get them connected? Because people need to be connected. Okay, that's circular. Why? Why? They, I mean, ultimately what we're doing is we want them to get connected in our church. Now, it's just, there are some occupational hazards with any occupation. One is to talk about things you don't embody. 
um, because you feel the pressure of God to deliver of 52 sermons, or you spread it out over a bunch of people and compound the problem because now they're working out of, if you were, have 10 different teachers, are working out of 10 different pictures as to what is the church, what's the picture in this passage, what's the picture in this book, and how do we tease that out in some way <clears throat> so that, uh, you know, a year later, Mike and Kathy go, I remember that epistle like it was yesterday. And uh, frankly, do you remember exactly what was being preached a year and a half ago in your church? No. I don't think the average person does. But Jesus seemed pretty confident. He said, you don't have to write this down. Don't worry. The Spirit will remind you at the appropriate moment. And that's what I, but see, that's intuition. And that's what I grew into through some mentors of, it's a lot like we do these podcasts, Pat, that listeners don't know. I mean, what do we know at 530 in the morning when we get on, uh, we get online together in terms of what we're going to talk about? <laughs> At 530, I mean, nothing. <laughs> we, we haven't selected a topic, I guess right. what I'm saying. I'm yeah. kind of mumbling toward it. We haven't selected a topic. But Pat talks out of his, comes at it out of his life and says, what if we consider this? I say, okay, we're off to the races. Why? Yeah. Because a path begins to unfold in my imagination. And I think this is, this is what we're, what we're we, but not just we, but um, what, what McGilchrist is trying to get at at his very rich but difficult to slog through book, The Master and His Emissary, is the right brain is more the intuitive mind, the left is the rational. Both are necessary. But as he quotes Einstein, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And the rational mind, its servant. We have created a society that honors the servant, but has forgotten the gift. And so the imaginative mind, the right brain, the intuitive mind that is honed, yes, by the left hemisphere, but it is only in the, in the right hemisphere that that it has the connection to our physical body and its nerve endings. So the right hemisphere just experiences life. The left hemisphere interprets it. The right hemisphere is not going out to grasp things. It is a receptor. So it doesn't know what's going to happen the next minute and recognizes that. It's what McGilchrist calls broadly vigilant. So therefore, in my mentoring Zoom this later this morning, the person comes and says, I'm ready to make the ascent. What was the next thing I did? When they said they don't want to make the ascent, I want to make the ascent. And I've known this person for a few years, but I said, email back. And a picture came to my mind that I think will be most beneficial. So do a gap analysis for me. A gap analysis. Describe the gap between where you are today and where you imagine yourself being a couple of years out. 
and let's, I left it at that. Now, what am I looking for in that response, in that person's response, the email that was sent back? What their, their, their picture in their head is, the imagination. Yep, looking for that. What else? What's um, not necessarily lacking, but what's missing currently? What's, what is the gap? Sure. Well, what else am I looking for from the right brain? Those are left brain and necessary and helpful. Those are sort of interpretations and using rightly uh, your sort of sorting out and figuring out. What I'm looking for that's more of a right brain is the ache. Mm. The ache due to the gap, in other words. That's right. Yeah. Hmm. It's often called pain points. Pain points drive behavior change. And uh, I was reading articles about um, recently about <clears throat> ex-NFL linemen uh, that, and weight problem. I mean, the weight gain, which is just, I mean, it's sad to read about you know, Willie Rolfe, great lineman, all, you know, all-star, all-pro rather. He's over, he ballooned over to f over 400 pounds when he left the NFL. And obviously you can see why. And it's not until it became a pain point, it could be even a mild heart attack, but something in your body that you just go, I don't, no matter what it takes, I have to change. Give you the pain point, by the way, of kids. By the way, a pain point can often be when you're older is grandkids. You just want to, you want to be healthy. You want to see them. You want to um, play with them. And uh, as people into their 60s and 70s, and especially they're sedentary, they become stiff, they become stiff. They uh, can't say, let's go outside and play tag. And you just want, you know, wheezing, trying to keep up. You know, for a lot of people, it's not a pain point. Uh, it's it's a pain point for me. I, I, I want to be able to do that as long as God gives me life. And But it means I have to do stretching and light lifting and bicycle riding and yada, yada, yada. And uh, I could do it for a number of reasons, but one is uh, uh, there's an ache, and there's an ache of um, <clears throat> my grandparents and then my kids' grandparents. And when I'm talking about Mark, Stephen, Jennifer, our kids, adults now, that uh, you know, one set of grandparents, Kathy's dad, passed away just after we got married. And the other was a life afflicted with rheumatoid arthritis. But she, even in that crippled state, powered through that to be a Mimi. And uh, my parents uh, didn't do much of that. And so there's a kind of a, all that gives me a, 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 literally a bodily ache. So what I'm listening for, looking for, is, is uh, writing in such a way there's a bodily ache. And uh, typically the ones who don't express that don't make the ascent after a while because it's not efficient, not painful. 
And uh, so, so for listeners, uh, Pat, you may or may not know, Pat is ripped. I'm kidding, Pat, but <laughs> Pat, Pat, he is actually, he's pretty like, uh, don't mess with Pat. <laughs> but I don't think you got that kind of physical strength. You, you acquired it by just reading books. <laughs> no, they were heavy books though. So, <laughs> and you didn't get it by writing down notes from, although that played a part perhaps, but yeah, it complimented. Sure. But it wasn't the yeah. primary. Yeah. But there you go. And so you could be a mentor. You could be a trainer. If I came along and said, Hey man, I want to get, I want to get buffed. And of course you would instantly look at me. At my age. Say, Mike, you're already there. (laughs) (laughs) Then at that point, you've lost all your credibility as a mentor. (laughs) But I bet you you'd be going, okay, I wonder if he knows how much time it took. Mm. Now, I could give it to him in in a six-point outline, or I could ask questions. I bet, tell me what you mean you want to get you want to get in shape. What's that mean? What's that look like? Um, do you actually have, uh, do you have margins in your life to do that? See, that's what I mean by what mentors do. Mentors just, I can't tell you the number of people because I go through our address list at the end of every year and I've been doing that now and I just look at all these names and go, so what happened to that guy? What happened to that guy? And I would never mention their name and I'd never come back to him and make him feel bad but they just sort of disappeared. Many of them live right here in town. And I, I intuit just like I (laughs) years ago signed up for a gym membership. And then over time I just sort of went away. (laughs) (laughs) They probably look at your contacts and go, what happened to that guy? (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, automatic payment. They were like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, And then the further along you're away, the more embarrassed you are in coming back. As if you think everybody in the club is going, what happened to Mike Metzger? (laughs) (laughs) They don't think about me from Squadoosh. (laughs) Uh, But that's that's, um, the the intuitive mind is a sacred gift, but like any sacred gift, it must be embodied. Hence, this is the season and why John starts and the word became flesh. So it must be fleshed out, embodied. And in that, you become capable of mentoring because you have informed intuition and imagination that those who want to be like you in that regard, follow. And by the way, if you go, Mike, that's presumptuous. The point is to be like Jesus, not to be like Pat. (laughs) Well, go back and read Paul. Mm -hmm. Right. Follow me as I follow Christ. Be imitator of me. Imitator of me. And again, I think what Taylor and others would say, like in our secular ages, the wallpaper of our faith today is uh, 
you'd find very few pastors saying that. Because to imitate that person means you have to actually be much more deeply into their life and their practices, which might expose some that, you know, there, there aren't these bodily disciplines because I, I just don't, you know, I know some really fine young men and women, but more often than not, I, I find myself thinking what another friend of mine used to call and listening to sermons, what have you, uh, adventures and missing the point that they just, you just go, you just, you walk by the life-giving part of what Paul or Ezekiel or, and it's no, it's not a, it's a lament, Pat. It's not a criticism because they haven't been mentored. Mm. And if they have gone to school, uh, seminary they haven't been mentored there and they've been brought up in a left brain system i was i remember when i went to the seminary that i went to the first one um went to two not by the way i didn't flunk i went to two different <laughs> i died by degrees is what they call it and uh but i remember going to the professors at this seminary and uh, asking who would mentor me. And none of them had time. They all had to moonlight to make ends meet. I was never mentored in that four-year school. And then uh, when I was uh, getting to the second degree up in Chicago at that seminary, it uh, wasn't until I got to know Dallas Willard and a little bit of John Woodbridge. Give John credit, too. Um, but the average the average, the average professor has never been mentored because most academic degrees, and I don't have an academic doctorate, by the way, is uh, they really are individualistic. You've got to write something very specific. You have to know these languages, generally German and Hebrew and Greek and so on and so forth. But it's a very highly specific, tightly focused thesis that it requires great effort of individualistic study, and I honor it. But that kind of intense, narrow focus is the domain of the left hemisphere. And so you're going to come away with um, a thesis that will be published as mine is bound in their library, poor library, poor school. Uh, maybe five people over the course of my life will ever even bump into it. And the, you're, you're also stuck with, how do, we, now how do I apply this to my life? I was never asked that. I was never asked. And um, you're just not trained to to use that half of your brain. You've never been mentored to use that half of your brain, which is intuitive, embodied, so that there might even come a time on a given morning, you'd feel this is a, 
this is a good honoring service to the Lord because the centerpiece is always there. And for the homily, I'll just read the passage because I really don't embody what it says, but I want to honor the passage. And we'll pull this passage from the lectionary, or perhaps all four for that Sunday, and we'll read them. Collective reading. It's actually part of a rich liturgical service. And we won't have a homily. Ten to one, most, <clears throat> most people won't miss it. Because it's not what they came for. There's a great little article you can Google if you can uh, to find it. It's Sarah Hinckley, I believe it's called. It's called Why I Go to Mass. Again, listeners, we're not advocating you all have to enter the Catholic Church. That's not what we're saying. We're saying this. Before Hinckley uh, did convert to Catholicism, by the way, I believe if I've got the story right, she used to do, amongst the other things in mentoring uh, high school students, was to take them to various traditions. So maybe it was a Greek Orthodox this, maybe it was a Reformed this, maybe an Anglican this. And then the, she used to go to this uh, some quiet chapel uh, for midday mass. And she remembers uh, bringing in all her students and there was no one there except for the priest. And he begins the service. And afterward, when he's, when they're done, she kind of asks him, well, like, so you don't do this if no one's here, right? And the priest said, of course we do. Hmm. Wow. It's the, that's what the Puritans called. There's always an audience of one. And that's why you do the mass. So she began to realize, well, that's why I go to mass. It's not there to get a sermon. This, by the way, Pat, might be why in COVID and the great, <clears throat> what's called the emptying out of the church or the religious recession, it's called in other places, is you can get everything in the service online except one thing. Communion. That's right. Eucharist, yeah. And if you have any <clears throat> sort of recognition that, um, yes, if you're stuck on a deserted island or something, you just have you and your spouse, and you grab some wine and bread and share. But if you're not in those sort of extreme situations, Communion can kill you if not properly partaken of and properly administered. It's a lot like saying, well, can't any old Joe Schmo uh, marry this couple here? Mm, not even according to state laws. There's something, as the traditional service says, this is an institution ordained by God and not to be entered into lightly. We've lost most of that. And so in having the uh, not being able to go to church, I think what a lot of people discover is, I can get everything I get at church online. And I don't have to get out of my PJs. So for, you know, we don't know how many, but a certain percentage will go. Well, gee, I don't know. 
actually, I, I listened to a Tim Keller sermon and went online with their service. It's even better. That guy knows more than my pastor. So I'm, I'm going to go to, uh, that's going to be my church. So you can live in Tampa and supposedly be a member of Redeemer. I'm not making fun of Redeemer, by the way. I'm not critiquing that. I'm saying that when this whole online started to come on, the phenomenon they talked about was the number of people. You can live in Nashville, mm, but sure. you quote attend church in Newark, which is a mind blower to think that that would even be considered rational. But it's because, again, what you're going for is I'm looking for the best TED Talk type uh, preacher or whatever you're looking for. I mean, it might be, no, I want the guy that goes on for an hour. That's really what I'm looking for. And so what you have is the church in America becomes a whopping shopping mall. And everybody just goes into the mall and goes to the store they want to go to. So this all goes back to mentoring and intuitive leadership and right brain. And you can see why it's effective, but it doesn't lend itself to efficiency. It's why even because you and I are reading Taylor's book and maybe we'll cap it at this is uh, sort of stir people's imagination. This Taylor will suggest that prior to the enlightenment, this notion that, uh, Everyone's going to be a disciple and everyone's going to learn this and everyone's going to participate in that would be unknown. That's what he calls equilibrium. And uh, I think a lot of people in our, in our traditions in America would find that revolting. But in fact, in fact, there's no evidence and some good books on this would be, uh, um, all that good book on it, why uh, one out of every 10 Americans tells the other nine what to eat, where to shop, where to go. But it's the idea that uh, in every society, it's generally no more than 10% of a population takes this stuff seriously and, and leads. No more than 10%. And that's, so that would include your church. So if your church is 100 people, it's basically 10 people taking this stuff seriously, getting after it. And yet in a populist tradition, we have to resource and serve every one of them, all 100. And I just never felt that way as a pastor. I never felt like we had to get community groups and everybody in the community because I'd find that they were called quick startup and they didn't last. You know, within a couple of weeks, people look at one another and say, well, I know you about as best as I really want to know you. Now what? Well, the church told us supposed to do community. This is it. I don't think that's it. I don't think we know what community is. I don't think we know what it involves. And so when you don't have, you know, there's only a select few that really want to be mentored. And then they have to be, they have to find mentors. And that's basically how best discipleship works also. And why I think Jesus took and thinned out because he's a, he was a mentor and you can't do mentoring on a mass scale and you also can't squeeze blood out of a turnip. I think the, the vast majority of people, I'm not making any judgments as to their spiritual health, 
they just don't want that. And, and so Taylor makes this provocative point that maybe that's the way the kingdom works. That if you're uh, this or that and work in tech, you're going to be pretty much taken up with that. And there's a, there's a good reason why. And that's the way it ought to be. Now, I know I've opened up a can of worms for a lot of people, but maybe that's good because these worms won't rot and maybe we'll take them up next week. So it's a lot more complex than you realize. <laughs>